we are starting a new sermon series in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't know where that book is, about halfway through, you'll find a big prophet named Isaiah. Go one before it and you'll find the Song of Songs. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that is on page 665. If you're not, I have no idea what page it's on. Uh, I think it's safe to say that I'm not a very trendy person. Um, I was like about seven years. I thought the iPhone was just a fad. And, and so I finally got one after about seven years. So I'm, I'm like about five or six years always behind the times. And my friend was telling me that I had to watch this reality show. I'm not a huge fan of reality shows, but he just told me, you got to watch this show. And so I watched it. It's, it's called Alone. Some of you know it. But here's the premise. Men and women get dropped into the middle of nowhere, and they just have to survive alone with their wits and their skills, right? And so I was watching it, and I watched one particular season, and you had eight men and two women dropped in the Arctic tundra, and they had to survive for a hundred days for a million dollars. Alone. Now, I'm particularly interested in this because I in, I cannot relate to these men and women. It, and, like, I'm pretty sure I couldn't survive two hours. I'd eat some berry and then I'd all of a sudden, like, die or something, right? Like, we have family camp. I'm pretty sure I can't survive family camp. It's that, I'm not, I'm that sort of guy. And so, I'm fascinated because these people are, like, not me. And I'm like, how in the world do they survive in the middle of nowhere? And, and basically, it's like a, a starvation contest. Like, who can gather enough food so they, because they're all kind of slowly starving, how can they gather enough food to survive? But the interesting thing is, the longer these men and women are alone, and I know this isn't like a technical term, but the longer they're alone, the nuttier they get. They get weird. They just start talking to the camera that's out there. They just start like having fashion shows. They're like doing weird stuff. And you just realize the longer they're alone, the weirder they get. And so eventually this, this particular man wins. He wins. And it's crazy because at the very end, he starts weeping, not because people show up and they give him a Snickers or a bowl of ice cream. He doesn't care about food. He's been the entire time starving for relationships. He sees his sister and he's just undone. These men and women are like the most intense people in our world. They are those loner types, right? Like we've all met, maybe you're one of those people that's like, I could live alone. Oh, I'm that guy. I don't need people. Well, these are like the most intense loners that you could find. And after a few weeks, they are starving for intimacy. They're starving for relationships. They're starving to have a conversation. That's all of us. That's archetypal of all of us. All of us, and I don't care if you're an introvert or a loner type, we all need and love and long for relationships. Or or you could put it actually negatively. If you think of some of the biggest trauma in your life or some of the deepest wounds in your heart, my guess, it comes because you longed for intimacy, you longed for love, and you didn't receive it. 
this spring, I'm going to take my life into my own hands, and we're going to look at the Song of Songs. It's a book in your Bible. You know, God inspired it for our good. And many people have called it many things. We're going to call it the Song of Songs, because in many ways, if you look at verse 1, it says, the Song of Songs, which is a Hebrew idiom, like the Holy of Holies, meaning this is the, the song of all songs. This is the greatest love song ever written. It is the Song of Songs. So, sorry Taylor Swift, sorry Boys to Men, sorry Elton John or Beatles or Bono. This is the greatest love song ever written, right here. It is the song of all songs. And who wrote it? Or who's it attached to? Well, verse 1 tells us Solomon. And I take it that Solomon did write it. He famously, we, we uh, learn in 1 Kings chapter 4, he wrote like some 3,000 proverbs and 1,000 songs. And one thing we know about Solomon is that he put his mind and energy to be wise generally wise. He looked at so many things, and I take it that this was his look at being wise related to love, particularly not just love in general, but a particular kind of love, which is marital love. But as I attach this to Solomon, if you know anything about Solomon, you're like, I got a problem with Solomon, and you should, because Solomon would make a polygamist blush, would he not? Right? He had like 700 wives and a bunch of concubines. So what in the world does Solomon know about faithful, committed, marital love? Well, you could think of it a few ways. But one, bare minimum, Solomon wrote better than he knew. Right? Every parent knows this. Right? We preach better than we actually live many days. And so even though Solomon fell below the biblical context here, though he morally failed related to relationships and marriage, one thing we know for certain is this, that we can still learn. Cautionary tales are still important tales for us to learn from. I wonder, and this is just me, if Solomon wrote this late in his life, reflecting on his relationships, and this is a, a, a love song, this is poetry, that's filled with repentance and remorse. It's a cautionary tale meant for our benefit as we think through relationships in general and marriage in particular. So this morning, chapter one, we're going to look at all of chapter one. It has four movements poetically, four acts. So think Shakespeare has acts. Well, Solomon wrote chapter one with four distinct acts. They all build on each other. We're going to look at all of these. But you could summarize, this is my best attempt, we could summarize all of these acts into one sentence. Here's the main idea that I'll give to you, and it's simply this. The longing for intimacy that we all have is not only a good, it's not only a good gift, a God gift, but it's also possible. You can experience intimacy. That's what we're going to look at today. So let, let's read all of chapter one, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run, the king has brought me into his chambers. 
we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will exalt your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like a tent of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has turned upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made, made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you who you my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful of women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a satchel of mirth that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly a delightful, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. And then it ends. Act one, scene one, longing. So the woman speaks, and what we're going to find out, actually the woman, the woman in this narrative is sort of the star. She speaks twice as much as the man. I'm not trying to read into that, but you might. She's the star. And she starts off in verse two, and she kind of just right out of the gates is asking for the man that she loves, this man that she's pining after, that he would kiss her. Now, I said the scene like this. Here's this woman, maybe in her bedroom, having a sleepover with her girlfriends, and she's dreaming of and kind of thinking about the man that she has fallen in love with. And so she's dreaming of kissing him. And she gives three reasons why she wants to kiss him. One, his love is better than wine. And we can get the imagery of this, right? Like, when she thinks about kissing him, her, her nags kind of buckle, right? She is intoxicated by his love. When kissing him is like being inebriated. She's got butterflies. And then second, verse three, she speaks of his fragrance. The, the, the language here is of his oils, his, his natural smell. Smell is really powerful, isn't it? Uh, my, my, uh, my wife went away on a girl's trip a couple weeks ago. And when I went to bed after putting the kids to bed, I just put my head on the pillow, and then her pillow was next to me, and I could just smell her. And it just provoked in me this, this longing for her return. That's, that's the power of smells, right? Good smells can bring back really powerful emotions and, and powerful reminders and, and all these sort of images of the past. And bad smells can do that too, can't they, right? My kids' body odors do that for me all the time. And then she gives a third reason. And she again talks about this idea of oil, but now it's not connected to smell. This oil is connected to his name, right? Verse three, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. So a name is connected to someone's reputation. And so here she's saying that when she thinks of him, it's not just that he's so beautiful, not just so she's just emotionally enraptured by him. His character, his reputation, his name just conjures up all these amazing thoughts. So, 
So what this young woman is doing, sitting with her kind of girlfriends, is she is pining over not just the chemistry of this, but his character. These two things are a powerful component in a, in a possible mate, right? Character and chemistry. She's found it, hasn't she? She's found that glorious combination. But not only does she just think of this guy, she wants to be in his presence, doesn't she? Verse, go to verse 4. So she calls him a king, which I take it Solomon's going to show up later. Solomon is a foil. He's like a, another character. There's basically four characters in Song of Songs. There's the man, the woman, the community, and Solomon that comes up in chapter, chapter 8. And Solomon is kind of a, a foil. So I take it that Solomon is not this man. He's writing this poem, and he's stepping outside of it. So, so if it's not literally a king, he's, this guy is metaphorically a king. We use this all the time, right? She's looking for language to connect chemistry and character, and so she basically is calling him Prince Charming. We, we do this, right? And she's like, as I think about him, he's just my Prince Charming, and she wants to run away with him. She wants to be with him, and so she just longs for and begins to process this, this whole idea of being in his presence, frolicking in the meadow, and enjoying time with him. Now, Right out of the gate, you're like, oh, that's cute, right? We've all experienced young love, right? You hear high schoolers or middle schoolers or 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 7-year-olds talk about, you know, that first date and they're getting the butterflies and you're like, oh, it's so naive, it's so cute. They're not experiencing the real world, you know. This is just fools rushing into love. Well, we know it's not because it's not just this girl explaining how much she loves and likes this man, the community around her affirm her in it, don't they? Do you notice that in verse 4? Her, 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 her community, her, I think it's her girlfriend, speak up and they exult and rejoice. So what the, these, these women are doing is they are affirming her love. They're not saying, you're naive. They're not saying like, dude, this is a bad apple run. They're not doing any of that. They're affirming that her affirmation, her desire, her longing for intimacy with this man is a good, godly gift. They're fanning that flame in a, within its biblical context. They're celebrating it, affirming its goodness. That's scene one. Scene one is about this woman longing for intimacy, longing for love, longing to be with her prince, charming. And we know this, she's not self-deceived. She's not naive. There is a goodness to the desire and longing within this woman's heart and life. Longing for intimacy, whether it's in a spouse, within your marriage, or within a friendship, longing for connection, longing to be known, longing to be loved, is a good gift from God. And yet at the same time, longing, especially the, this sort of longing, does have its dangers. I mean, just ask Tiger Woods about that. Or just ask rock stars about that. Desire like this has its dangers. We can be fools who run into love. We can want intimacy so much. We could yearn for intimacy so much that we can throw ourselves into relationships thinking that that's where we're going to find longing and security and fullness we can 
look for, look for love, but we can often look for love in all the wrong places. And I think this is why, by way of application, this, these four verses are so helpful because what we learn in this first scene is that one of the gifts God gives to us to think through our relationships is the church. So, so if you're dating or thinking about dating, or, or you need people. You need people around you who are speaking into your relationship. You, you need people who are affirming you, who, who are saying like, oh, this is great, or like, I don't know, maybe you should slow down. All of us can get tunnel vision. And so here's just a reminder that we need friends who love us enough to say, slow down. Or in, if you're married, this is why we need other married friends. We need other community to speak into our marriages to help us to create greater love and affection within our marriages. And I think, in some ways, this is particularly difficult for us in the Northwest. We're private people. We don't like to talk about what's going on personally or maybe even personally in our marriages. But here's just a reminder, a sort of subtle rebuke, that though our marriages can be personal, they ought not to be perfectly private. It's why we don't do weddings all alone. That's not what a wedding, a wedding is a public affirmation. But do you have friends? Do do, do you have friends who are championing your singleness in this season or championing uh, this season as you're dating or championing your marriage who are encouraging you and speaking into that? That's what we have here and it is a great gift so that it our desires and our longings, our search for intimacy can be brought in its proper context. So that's scene one, a longing for intimacy. This woman longs to be close to the man that she loves. But there's a problem. Because when you long for intimacy, it can breed a problem. And we see it in Act 2, starting in verse 5 through verse 7. Longing for intimacy can breed insecurity. Look there in verse 5. So she speaks and she says, I'm very dark but lovely. Do not gaze upon me because I'm dark. Now, just this is not talking about ethnicity. The the Bible puts no value judgment on pigmentation. That's not what's going on here. And we know what's going on here because we just got to keep reading, right? She's been out in the sun. And so this has to do with social standing, not ethnicity. Think of Song of Songs uh, this way. This is a Cinderella story. And so you've got these brothers who are telling her she's got to work the field. And so she's out. And so she's working the vineyard. And she can't keep to her own vineyard, which is a metaphor of her body, right? She is unkept. She's working hard hours. And she's like Cinderella with the wicked stepsisters. Only in this context, it's the wicked stepbrothers who are telling her, you got to work the field. you gotta, you got to sweat and whatever. And as she's thinking about all this work that she has to do, she can't just be like, remember Esther, who's like getting all this, this bathing and this treatment to beautify her? That's not her story. Her story is that she's out. She's got dirt under her fingernails, and she, she hasn't taken a bath in a, in a while, and her hair is unkept, and she doesn't have any makeup on, and uh, you know her perfume is just still on the dresser. And so as she longs to be united and reunited with this man, she begins to look at herself and go, I don't know if I'm that beautiful. Every, every society has a standard of beauty, right? It changes. 
And in this society, um, being lighter meant that you were more beautiful. And the reason was because it was, a, it was attached to social standing. And so because she's sunburned, because she works, she's more working class, and therefore she has this insecurity physically because she's like, I'm not stacking up against the standard of beauty that my society thinks is the most beautiful. She describes herself as sort of naturally beautiful in verse 5, but it's easy to see that she is physically insecure. Her hair's not done. Her, she's sunburned. She doesn't have makeup on. And she's insecure. But that's not the only thing that she's insecure about. She's also, verse 7, insecure about her social standing. So she continues to talk about her insecurities, but in a different way. So it says, uh, verse 7, that her, her man's out in the field somewhere, working it, tilling it. She has no idea where he is. And she has a standing lunch date with him, but she has no idea where he's going to be. And so she says, I don't, I don't want to be going around as a, um, like one who has veiled herself. Meaning, I don't want to just be going around screaming, breaking social uh, taboos. I don't want to be walking around trying to find this guy and create social shame. So not only is she physically insecure, see, she is socially insecure. And I don't think that's just her. She too is archetypal of all of us. All of us have our insecurities. They just might be different. We, we might have physical insecurities. We might have financial insecurities. We might be insecure about our jobs. We might be insecure about our cars. We might be insecure about this or insecure about that. But all of us, men and women, all of us have insecurities. It, it's part of living in a broken world. And this woman has hers. And, and what insecurities do, because insecurities are nothing short of of thoughts that come in light of our comparisons to other things or other people. Insecurities are comparisons. And so we think, well, that person can eat anything they want and still stay that, not me. Or that person works just as hard as I did, but they got the promotion and I didn't. And we can go on and on and on. But insecurities arise because we're comparing ourselves with others. It's that internal voice that we hear that thinks, you're not beautiful enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not rich enough. You're not good enough. You're not clean enough. You're not this enough. And those voices come in all shapes and sizes, but all of us have those voices in our mind. Now, sometimes we listen to those voices, don't we? And we know and I'm not going to belabor this point, that when you listen to those voices, it's not good. And so that leads us to, and I think kind of the modern wisdom is, well, then silence those voices. Just tell yourself, that's not true. I'm beautiful enough. Like, champion yourself and, and, and speak to yourself. And I think that there's a good place for that. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing. But I think it's insufficient. Because of all of our insecurities, which we see typified in this young woman, we need a better voice. We actually need something external from us and our souls to speak a better word that will assure us that we're more beautiful than we could ever dream ourselves. That's what we see in scene three. 
Act three. Here we see the man stepping forward and bringing assurance in the midst of her insecurities. So finally, starting in verse eight, the man speaks. He speaks and he says, basically, um, you don't know where I am, but I gave you a roadmap. This is where I'm going to be. Follow the tracks and you'll find me. So right there, he alleviates one of her insecurities. Her social insecurity, he says. Here's the roadmap. This is where I'm going to be. And then he begins to describe what she means to him, her, her beauty. And it's a bit like Shakespeare's 18 sonnet, sonnet right? You, some of you, I had to memorize it uh, as a kid, right? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Remember that? Okay, well, well in this sense, she's, he's not comparing her to a summer's day. He compares her to a horse. We gotta be careful here. Um, there's a, there's a clothing store for women that offends me. Like deeply offends me. I don't know why other women are not offended by this, but every time I drive by it, this injustice rages inside of me and I just think that it's horrible and I feel like I'm the only one that thinks that this store is the worst named store in the entire world. Dress Barn. Am I right? This is the part where you say amen, all right? I mean, I would not go to a, a, a store that called me a pig, right? But, like, women are not barn animals. So I can't get away with that. I definitely can't get away with that with my wife. Like, how does this guy get away with using the imagery of a horse and connecting it to beauty and this woman? Let's do some work, okay? So a couple things. But one... Horses are beautiful, all right? Ask Liz about this. But if, you, if you're hanging out with, and you're by a horse, they are elegant and big and glorious. And so he's connecting his love to this black stallion, right? Or black beauty. There's something gorgeous. Like when you go to the Puyallup Fair and you see the Clydesdales going, there's just something beautiful. Or when you see a Mustang and, and it's all of its mane just flowing, there is something beautiful about a horse. But, but notice, he, what he's really saying is he's connecting this horse, uh, Pharaoh. He says, uh, you, you are, um, verse uh, 9, I compare thee, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. And then he goes on and talks about jewelry. And so he's connecting Pharaoh's horses. Would, uh, a mare would have all this jewelry. And this jewelry would just accentuate the beauty that was already there. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, you are naturally beautiful. And the jewelry that you have just accentuates what's already there. So what's happening here is he's basically saying, you're insecure physically and socially. He responds and assures her of her physical beauty and her social insecurity. He listens to her. He listens to her insecurities and then brings an assurance that he loves her in the midst of those insecurities. We all have insecurities. I don't think I need to convince you of that. But I think so often what we do is when someone shares their insecurities and what those are, sometimes we just discount them or we minimize them, right? Right? My, my uh, wife was 
getting ready to uh, teach at a women's breakfast, and she wanted to process studying this chapter, and she was talking about and having a level of insecurity uh, about teaching, and I could have just been like, Lisa, this is so simple. You just open up your Bible, you just take your pen out, you get your Greek out, you da 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 right? This is so ridiculous. I could have done any of that, and you're all instantly like, don't do that, right? But there's a count because I'm like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't, every week because I maybe do this enough, it's not, I'm not like insecure about that. I'm like, this is really fun. It's like hunting for treasure. What I need to do, what I did in part, not perfectly, was I need to listen to her insecurities. Before I can speak a word of affirmation, a word of encouragement, a word of assurance, I have to first make sure that I hear I think we're really bad at this. When we share intimacy, or when we share our insecurities, which is a very vulnerable thing to do, often we rush, we rush to answer the question or to, to assure the person without fully listening. And we know this guy listens because he's addressing the very things that are at the heart of the woman that he loves. And so we first have this man who listens, and then he speaks. Only after listening, only after hearing, only after asking questions, am I understanding it right, does he finally give assurance? Does he finally speak words of encouragement? Does he finally give verbal affirmation that she is beautiful and that she doesn't need to worry about being one who is veiled? That's the power of this moment. It really is Quite a beautiful thing. So, so in your marriages or in your friendships, are we listening? Like listening, listening. Not jumping to conclusions. Not minimizing because I don't understand. But really listening. Listening enough so when you do speak, it hits the mark. Well, after listening, this man, he speaks, doesn't he? And he speaks a better truth to this woman. And it then begins to just quiet the voices in her head. Those voices that I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not high standard enough. He speaks and it quiets that voice. He speaks a better word than she was speaking to herself. We need this. My my son playing baseball, and we went to his game yesterday, and he was set to be the starting pitcher. And I heard him say, I'm not a good pitcher. There's his insecurity. He says it out loud. And I instantly could have said, just tell yourself. Tell yourself you're good enough. But I knew that wasn't going to work. I mean, I, I did all these sorts of things. You know what really worked? His coach, when he showed up, grabbed him, saw that he was a little nervous about this, and he looked him straight in the eye and said, I wouldn't make you the starting pitcher if I didn't think you were a good pitcher. He needed an external voice to speak into his life, to affirm him in the midst of his insecurities. You guys know that's the gospel? The gospel is all about God's assurance in the midst of our insecurities. The gospel is God's word, a better word, that speaks into our insecurities, which the greatest insecurities we have is our sin. And God speaks a better word in light of our insecurities and says, through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, I assure you, 
that I will have a relationship with you. I assure you that we can be one. I assure you that I love you and that you're beautiful and I accept you in Christ. The gospel is all over Song of Songs. But maybe you're not experiencing this better word. Maybe you're in a relationship and you're like, I'm not getting a lot of these external words. Look to the greatest and the best word that you can receive. So if those words inside that say, I'm not good enough, I'll never be, I'll never measure up, and maybe you don't have friends that are really affirming you outside, well, there is the best word that you can hear, a word from heaven himself, Jesus Christ, who speaks a better word and affirms you in the midst of whatever insecurity you're going through and says, in Christ, you're enough. You're worthy. You're beautiful. We need external affirmation. We need a better word. And that's what we see. This, this man speaks a better word to this woman, which then does something amazing. Scene four, act four, the restoration of intimacy. That's what we see in verse 12 to verse 17. And there's a back and forth. She speaks, he speaks, and she gets the final word. Actually, she'll get the final word in the book as well. Don't read into that. Once again, she calls him king and wants to hang out on on his love couch. And, And then they sort of go back and forth in praising one another. And just read it. It gets kind of heated. It gets kind of intense. Um, once again, her favorite sort of pet name is King. She dreams of hanging out with him. And then it shifts, and she talks about how she's going to seduce him. Nothing scandalous, nothing sinful. It's tasteful. And she's going to intoxicate him by her natural pheromones. She's going to put on that Chanel perfume as they are hanging out, and she's going to subtly woo him because intimacy has been restored. Intimacy can be a, an intimacy killer, or insecurity can be an intimacy killer. You don't want to know what an intimacy thriller is? Affirmation, encouragement, assurance. And so she, she speaks, she affirms him, and then after kind of describing him as a, a beautiful vineyard with just grapes bursting out, he then just is like, you're dropped dead gorgeous, Right? He repeats it twice just so he makes sure that she hears it. He explains that her eyes, he gets lost in her eyes. Her eyes are like a dove. And then the woman speaks last, repeats back basically what the man just says, affirming him, yep, you're beautiful too. Yep, I love you. Yep, I enjoy you. But at the very end, there's a shift in imagery. And it shifts from, you know, talking about each other, and it shifts to this whole idea, this, this garden imagery. Did you guys notice it? So we've got green and cedar and house and rafters and pine. Seems kind of odd. Well, all of this garden imagery are words that come up earlier in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. And so as she's talking about the house that she wants to make with this guy, it starts conjuring up ideas of Eden. Like That's where they're at now. They have an Edenic-like love. That's the sort of intimacy they have. As Adam and Eve were intimate and had this wonderful relationship, so throughout chapter 1 and this little 
play of, of pursuing and longing and insecurity and affirming, they've finally arrived back home. Eden is restored. Intimacy, finally, is being experienced. And it's really amazing. It really is amazing. But maybe that's not you this morning. And maybe it is you this morning. So let me just end by encouraging two things. If you do have that sort of relationship, praise God. Encourage and fight for that all the more. Continue to to have conversations that elicit all of our insecurities and then fight for deeper and deeper connectedness, connect uh, closeness. Intimacy is about being known. Continue to grow and know, ask questions, get to know your spouse. So whatever health you have, just build on that health. Praise God for that. But if not, if that's not your experience at all, well, there is hope. There really is hope. And this is what I'll say. If you long for intimacy, but don't feel like you found it, if you long for intimacy, but things have just gotten in the way, bank on a sure bet. That's my advice. Bank on a sure bet. You know what that sure bet is? Jesus Christ. Because even if you can't have that with your spouse, or if you're single and maybe you haven't found out in a person, or maybe friendships, you're like, I'm longing for just closer friendships, and maybe you're not having that. Well, there is a sure bet in Jesus Christ. He is better than marriage. He's better than sex. He's better than any pleasure that you can experience. You can actually have the th- an aspect of what is described in chapter 1. You can experience that with Jesus Christ. Your, your, your longing for intimacy can be found in God. The gospel guarantees it. The gospel is Jesus Christ coming down and then dying and raising from the grave and doing all of that so that you can stoke a deeper intimacy with him. And it is enough. I mean, you can't read the New Testament and not think it's enough. Like the Pauline letters, all in all, it's saying Jesus in any season is sufficient. He is enough. So if that's you this morning and you're like, I don't want to go through this book. This book is just going to bum me out. Well, I promise you this. This book is all about how to deepen our relationship with God. Right? It even says, follow the roadmap, as this guy does. This book is a roadmap to God. So follow the signs. Follow the signs. Start with Jesus. He's a sure bet. And then work your way out. Relationships are some of the most rewarding and some of the most painful experiences we can go through. But Christ, you can find your longing for intimacy, your longing for fullness, your longing for love. You can find it in Jesus Christ. And that's where Song of Songs, chapter 1, ends. With intimacy restored. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for, for the gift of relationships in all of its form. We, we pray, Lord, that, that we would 
cultivate greater relationships with the people that you bring into our lives. We pray, Lord, that as we go through this sermon series, that you would comfort us and challenge us. But ultimately, Lord, we pray that our relationship with God wouldn't just merely be cerebral, but that there would be something within our heart and minds and emotions and affections that would be stirred such that we can find our longing for you, our longing for closeness. We pray, Lord, that we would find it in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.